This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state's first openly transgender lawmaker has been elected in Arvada. Democrat Brianna Titone declared victory late Friday, and her opponent conceded over the weekend. House District 27 had been held by a Republican. Representative-elect, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Before we talk about this milestone, what was the top issue you heard from voters in your district? Well, the top issue for most of the people we talked to was education funding. And, uh, you know, it's really unfortunate that 73 didn't pass because I thought that that would have helped. This was a tax increase for schools that uh, failed by a pretty wide margin. Yeah. And I think that would have been a good source of funds for us to solve some of our problems. But, you know, going up against Tabor and getting the, the votes from people to raise their taxes has always been a challenge here. And trying to communicate that message appropriately and effectively to the people is really what I think is going to make the difference the next time around. How important is it that you're transgender? Um, you know, in my district, I don't think it's quite as important as it is in a lot of other places. If you look at Denver, there's a lot more LGBTQ people living there. My district is not quite as diverse. But it's significant in the fact that we're really trying to further equality and acceptance for people like me. And with the federal government really trying to put people like me under their foot, uh, this is a really significant win. And this whole movement about we will not be erased, I kind of had an extra part to that and say, you know, we will not be erased, but we will be elected. The Trump administration is considering a rollback of policies that have protected the rights of of trans people. When you would knock on doors, would you introduce yourself as a trans person? No, no. I would just say, my name is Brianna Titone. I'm running for House District 27, and I'm here to find out what's important to you and what we can do to help solve the problems that affect you. And that was something that they were really craving, was someone that was going to listen to them and help them solve the problems that they're having. I want to say that your district was held by a Republican. In fact, the person who had it before you went on to become the candidate on the Republican ticket for lieutenant governor, Lang Sias, correct? That's right. Yeah. Do you think that his moving on to the, the that ticket, do you think that opened up the opportunity for you to do as well as you did? Because they had to find a Republican replacement pretty quickly, right? Yeah, they did. And having a, an opponent that didn't have a lot of time to run is an advantage, and not running against an incumbent in general is an advantage of having an open seat. This is a Republican Vicky Pine that you were in this race against. Okay, so the Democratic Party says that you're the first transgender person, you're a transgender woman, but the first transgender person to be elected to the Colorado State Legislature. What can you tell us about trans folks who have been elected to legislatures elsewhere? Well, the first openly trans person to win at the state level was Danica Rome, and that was uh, last year's election, and she won for Virginia delegate. Well, back to Colorado. Are you worried at all about a Democratic overreach? Because uh, you have the state house, the state Senate, and the governorship now in Democratic hands. Uh, in the past, that, that has led to a bit of uh, a bit of pushback. Yeah, and, you know, we have a pendulum in government that always swings left and right. And I think that, uh, you know, we're 
smart enough and know enough about history to realize that if you do push the limit too far, that the pendulum swings the other way a lot faster. So we really do need to work with the people to solve the problems collaboratively and to hear both sides of the of the issues to make sure that we're not doing things that are really going to switch that pendulum over. Brianna, is there anything you want to share about your biography, perhaps your transition that you think might help those who don't feel that uh, their body and their gender identity perhaps match? Um, I, I want to allow you to share what you feel comfortable sharing. Well, you know, I wrote an article and I held on to it for quite a while and it was kind of a timeline of what I hid from everyone and and how difficult that was and the risks that I had to take to try to feel the way that I felt inside without getting beaten up or or worse. It was always really difficult. And building up that thick skin of courage uh, really helped me develop that courage to do what I do now. But my whole entire life has been kind of pushing the limits of of my abilities. I was a volunteer firefighter when I was 16. I was a junior firefighter. I did that for seven years. And I was trying to become an FBI special agent for a while and ended up not making that process through 100%. So I understand what taking a risk is and deliberately putting myself into harm's way for someone else, for the greater good. And that's what made running for office now a lot easier than I think a lot of people would think it would be for for someone who hadn't been through all that before. Well, thanks for letting us get to know you, and congratulations. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Democrat Brianna Titone, who's a geologist by trade, will represent Arvada in the state house. She'll be Colorado's first openly transgender state lawmaker. Now, an election result that has largely flown under the radar. Colorado voters agreed to remove something from the state constitution, and that is the definition of industrial hemp. So what's this all about? Morris Beagle is president of the Colorado Hemp Company. Morris, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate you having me on today. And before we talk about the legal change, I guess I want people first to understand the scope, the size of the hemp industry in Colorado these days. Uh, By way of background, voters approved hemp when they legalized recreational marijuana here, and they put both into the state constitution. So how big is hemp here, and what's it being used for besides, like, you know, bohemian clothing, which I think a lot of people associate it with? So Colorado currently, as of at least through 2017, is the largest producer of industrial hemp in the country, as far as acreage goes. In 2017, I think there was 25,000 acres total in the United States, of which Colorado had like nine to 10,000 of those acres. And then here in 2018, it looks like we're going to be around the 20,000 acre mark and still either number one or number two in the country. There's a Montana actually just came out of nowhere and supposedly has 22,000 acres in the ground. But anyway, Colorado is certainly a leader in the industrial hemp industry here domestically. And the majority of what's driving it right now is really kind of the uh, cannabinoid farmer, CBD products, health and wellness supplements. And then from there, we've got the food side of it with uh, 
hemp seeds and protein powder and hemp oil. And then the fiber side of it is kind of bringing up the rear at this point in time. But over the course of the next three to five years, you'll see a lot more of the fiber applications from paper and biocomposites and plastics and and other things that can be used, building materials, animal bedding, and that sort of uh, stuff. Okay, so the the opportunities are pretty diverse. And what what is prompting more acreage to be grown? I mean, obviously, farmers see a market for it, but presumably that market is better than growing some other crop at this point. Yeah, the value per acre with hemp at this point in time is significantly better than it is with, let's say, corn or soy or wheat or alfalfa or hay. And it, it, it's challenging, though. You got to have a, you got to find your buyer, and you got to really examine the market and see what's what's hot out there. But like I said before, really the CBD, cannabinoid extract, health and wellness supplement side of the business is driving it right now. Margins are pretty high on that, and should remain high for a while. But that market's going to level out, and and we'll see a variety of other things start to happen again with the fiber side and probably the food side. Is it a very food? Is it a very thirsty crop? In other words, uh, is it a better alternative for farmers that are thinking about their access to water? Yes, it it does use less water than traditional, let's say, corn or cotton. Oh. Um, how much less? It, it kind of really depends on the whole growing environment and where you're exactly located within the region and what cultivars that you've got planted. But it is a less water-intensive crop traditionally than, a, let's say, a corn or a wheat or a soy. So like recreational marijuana, there is you know, this question of what the state is doing versus what the federal government is doing and bringing those into sync, into some level of cooperation. And that brings us to Amendment X on the ballot. It needed 55% of the vote to pass. It actually received more than 60%. Uh, I think there's still some confusion about what the passage means for Colorado. In short, uh, can you tell people uh, why it is important, in your view, to have removed that language uh, touching hemp from the state constitution uh, into statute, presumably making it more nimble? So when Amendment 64 passed, this was really specific to adult use. And the definition of industrial hemp was placed within this amendment to distinguish it from adult use marijuana. And that definition has a percentage of 0.3% THC, which is the defining percentage of what makes it industrial hemp versus marijuana, anything over 0.3%, 0.3%, it would then be considered marijuana. Right. T- THC that, is the active ingredient, the psychoactive ingredient, and, and hemp has to, by definition, fall below that so that essentially you can't get high from it. Correct. And that percentage is an arbitrary percentage, and there's a large group of us that feels that that percentage is, is too low. It puts farmers at risk. And we've seen this over the last several years where farmers will grow a crop. It's tested by the Department of Agriculture, and it comes in at, let's say, 0.4, 0.5, Then it becomes unusable, and the, and the farmer can't monetize that crop. So this having it, the percentage at 0.3% in our Constitution is really a detriment to the farmers. Um, this const- we do not have a constitutional right to grow hemp. 
because of what it says in Amendment 64. All it is is a definition. Hmm. And we're the only state in the country that has this definition in our Constitution. And again, it's a hindrance because there's other states out there that have a, a higher percentage that would in turn allow for breeders and geneticists and seed people to have more variance in the in the genetics they produce. They don't have to be restricted by this 0.3%. And again, the vast majority of us in this industry would love to see this percentage go to 1%. And there's been talk about a 0.6% to a, to a 1% at the federal level. It's not currently in the legislation that Mitch McConnell put into the Farm Bill, um, but the definition that is in there is a much broader definition uh, than what we've got in Amendment 64 right now. And Basically, what we're wanting to do, this, this amendment gives us the opportunity to modify our definition and hopefully address this hot hemp thing and to be able to eventually raise this percentage without having to go back and, again, do another amendment, because we can only do this every two years. Like you said, it takes 55 percent of the vote to yeah. pass it. And this really belongs in statute so the industry can really monitor this and we don't have to worry about the general public and the voters of the state who aren't vested in the industry. Now, within the hemp industry in Colorado, there is some division over this and uh, more importantly over what happens next. Your business, the Colorado Hemp Company, is based in Fort Collins and a state senator from there, Vicki Marble, spearheaded this effort to get Amendment X on the ballot. Uh, Others in the industry say they had no idea this effort was even underway, and they have questions about why it happened. This is Veronica Carpio, CEO of Grow Hemp Colorado and Colorado Hemp Coffee. Now that it's passed, I think there's a lot of very upset people in our hemp industry, especially the hemp farmers that voted against it. I think our fear is, number one, our constitutional rights and protections have been removed, that we have just left our thriving hemp industry in the hands of lawmakers, the federal government, and lobbyists. Again, because now the definition will be in statute, not the state constitution, which is harder to change. Carpia says the measure was brought to voters under false pretenses. She does not believe the government is going to set a higher THC level, nor that the state should take action on that assumption. If Senator Vicki Marble does decide to run a bill, which is step two, Um, at legislative session to increase THC to 1%, that will automatically put our state program out of federal compliance under the Farm Bill 2014 and the future one coming, which could create a number of potential criminal and civil actions down the road on our farmers. So there's, there's absolutely no discussion at a federal level of the THC being raised, unlike what has been told to the voters here in Colorado. Is there a danger, just more broadly, that Amendment X could kind of fracture Colorado's industry here? So I think that there's some unfounded fear there. There was, you know, Vicki Marble uh, did this through referred measure. There was no special interest whatsoever from the industry. I mean, I had no idea this was going on. This, again, was put in there to give us the flexibility when the Farm Bill passes to adjust our definition so it matches the federal definition like it does right now with the the farm bill from 2014 section 7606 it very closely mirrors that currently um, Veronica is incorrect when she talks about there's not 
been any discussion at the federal level to raise a percentage. There has been discussion. One of the holdbacks in that discussion happened to be that Colorado is the only state that has it at 0.3% in the Constitution. And our own representatives, uh, now Governor-elect Jared Paulus, as well as Michael Bennett and Cory Gardner, had expressed apprehension about a higher percentage at the federal level because it would put our state at a competitive disadvantage. Mm. So there's there's some misinformation there. And I think really, truly in the long run, if you look at the national, the national situation, we are going to get to a point where we're going to have a federal program. All states are going to have to have state programs that abide by the federal program that are approved by it. And this amendment whatsoever is not going to change anything for the negative. Colorado is going to be a leader in this industry. We've got a great state legislature who on both sides of the aisles have been tremendously supportive over the last several years. That's why we're a leader domestically right now, because we've got a really good legislature who have done a lot of stuff for us in statute. Again, I think that is just unfounded uh, division that's out there because there's no specific agenda to All right, Morris, to I'm going to have to leave program. it there. It's Morris Beagle there, president of the Colorado Hemp Company, and he supports Amendment X, which voters passed last week. As we said, it removes the definition of industrial hemp from the state constitution. Beagle saying there that that has everything to do with nimbleness for a growing industry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The midterm election may be over, but what the results say about the future of Colorado is just coming into focus. Today in Purplish, our politics podcast, we take a closer look at the impact of the vote. Here once again is host Sam Brash. After talking about the election for more than two months, I have to catch you up on the results. Because Tuesday was a pivotal night in Colorado. It wasn't a blue wave. It was a blue avalanche. Democrats had the night in Colorado that they wish they had across the country. The party completely dominated. Colorado in this country sent a clear message today. Democrats won every statewide office for treasurer, for secretary of state, for attorney general. Republicans had good turnout, but the Dems had record turnout. The unaffiliated had record turnout. And of course, for governor. Ladies and gentlemen, Jared Polis, the next governor of Colorado. What an incredible night. Moments ago, uh, Walker Stapleton called. They also won both legislative chambers, growing their majority in the state house and taking over the state senate. That means Democrats have complete control of Colorado state government for the first time since 1936. This is New Deal levels of control. The avalanche was so strong that some argue it just washed away Colorado's status as a purple state. I disagree. I think we're still going to be purple. When you look at how many independent voters lean conservative and that the registration between Democrats and Republicans is still very close, this election, I think, is more of a blunt comment, a very direct comment on the Trump presidency. And I think a lot you had some that decided to let's stay away. Let's stay away. I knew if the race was nationalized as a referendum on the president. Mike Kaufman. That I simply could not win this race. Too bad, Mike. So for this episode of Purplish, we're going to talk about why Democrats so thoroughly dominated in Colorado 
and what that says about the state's political identity. And to help me do that, I have uh, three people here with me from CPR. Grace Hood, you're our energy environment reporter. That's right. Uh, ben Marcus, our business reporter. And I'm going to bring the business. And Megan Verlee, my boss and Colorado Public Radio's public affairs editor. Great to be here. All right. So given the election results in Colorado, here's the first thing I'm curious about. What do you guys think we should name this episode? Big money. Big money. You think that's the story of the race? All right, Ben? I think that's a good contender since more than $200 million was spent on the election. I like the suburbs because so much focus was on races in the suburban areas and they split from some of the more progressive areas of the state, too. So I think there's a lot of interesting stories to mine in that. And I'm going for watch out Democrats. And I'm not sure if that has a colon. So it's like, watch out. Democrats, because they control everything, <laughs> or watch out, comma, Democrats, because the last time they were in this situation, it didn't last long. Wow, you just made a grammar joke on the radio. This is why you don't let me be on your podcast. <laughs> All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contend with Blue Avalanche, you know, like Blue Wave, but just it's localized here to Colorado. I think that is the story of this race. And, and let's jump into that big question. Why do you guys think Democrats so thoroughly won this time around. And what do you guys think that means going forward? I think the next couple of years and 2020 are going to be really telling on that. You know, obviously my little title on Watch Out Democrats. The last time Democrats had the trifecta at the state house and could run the bills they wanted, voters did not react uh, super positively to that. And, and two years later, they returned a Republican majority to the state Senate. That's right. And when you look at, uh, for example, just look at Polis, how votes broke down. I mean, you see so many rural counties still staying very red. And so I think uh, we also saw uh, back when we had the trifecta a couple years ago, there was really a backlash in rural Colorado. And we might see that again. And just to be clear, when we say trifecta, we're just talking about how the state house, the state senate, and the governor's mansion will all be controlled by Democrats. Ben, what do you think? Is uh, is Colorado a blue state now? I think maybe if this election is a referendum on President Trump, I don't think Colorado's ever been Trump country. I think that the suburbs are uh, educated, affluent, and they just never have really taken to him. And so it may be more about Trump than it is about huge numbers of Democrats finally entering the state of Colorado and permanently turning it blue. So I think maybe that's where Megan's title is perfect. Mm -hmm. And Grace, I want to ask you about that, right? Because we talk about how Democrats won all these offices, but some of the more progressive initiatives failed, right? Especially when you look at ones that required big economic changes in the case of transportation, education. Voters did not have an appetite for that. What was interesting, though, was the appetite for local tax increases. You saw fire protection districts getting more money, more money for broadband, more money coming through recreational marijuana taxes that were local. So that, to me, is kind of counterintuitive, surprising. That matches Colorado's history, though, because local tax measures have been extremely successful in the state. I don't know what the success rate is, but it's something like 75, 80 percent. And because it's a specific thing, it's a tax that you're going to pay and you're going to get some specific benefit out of. Statewide taxes have never been successful here. And I want to go back to actually the very first episode of Purplish, where we talked about direct democracy in Colorado and, and the initiative process. And Obviously, I've only been around for 10 of the 100 or so years that we have had this tool. But my experience in that time is that Colorado voters seem to be increasingly leery of making complex, especially fiscal policy at the ballot box. It seems like when voters do something dramatic, it's something fairly understandable, like 
we're going to legalize marijuana. That may be dramatic, but it's simple. Or we're going to legalize aid in dying. It's sort of more social issues and sort of more simple to understand issues. Absolutely. I covered Amendment 74, which has to do with taking. So that's the idea that if a government takes an action and your property is devalued, uh, you can go to court and get compensation. And I just saw the shadow of Tabor hanging over that debate. And to the extent that there was a lot of discussion about how wide sweeping it was, we don't understand all the implications. So there's kind of that precautionary principle, I think, that factored into some voters. Complexity is an interesting issue. I've talked to political consultants trying to figure out why the transportation tax failed. And it may be you got two different measures on the ballot dealing with transportation. It's just very confusing to voters. And clarity, they say, is so important because some people, the only information they have about this is what they're reading in front of them. And it doesn't make any sense. And so the default in those cases can be no. And I think we absolutely do have to talk about Tabor in the context of this election. The ghost of Doug Bruce, and he's still alive. He's down in Colorado Springs or he's in a ruckus. But it is still definitely a huge factor when it comes to ballot initiatives. Ben, this is something I know you paid a lot of attention to because you wrote a whole biography, basically, podcast biography of Douglas Bruce called The Tax Ban. How did Tabor play a role in this last election? So my wife and I sat down to vote, and she reads that first line of these tax questions, how shall state taxes be raised by $1.6 billion annually uh, in the case of the education tax? It's just a lot of zeros, right? And Doug Bruce made sure in the Tabor Amendment that that's how tax questions are presented to voters, to put the dollar amount in the first question. And I think that that's always going to scare people away. And as dollars, as the inflation grows, those dollar amounts are only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I think what we're kind of getting at here is that when you get into the ballot initiatives, this whole debate about red wave and blue wave and are things Republican and Democrat, it quickly gets kind of muddy and unclear if party politics and party identity and partisanship is really playing a role. And the one that I really want to ask about with regards to that is Proposition 112. This is the 2,500-foot setback for new oil and gas drilling. Grace, I know this is something you paid so much attention to. Did 112 break down on party lines? Did it break down on party lines? Absolutely not. And I have covered so many local bans on oil and gas from back to 2012, Longmont, Fort Collins, uh, Broomfield, and the, all those passed. I will tell you when the results were posted at 7.05 or whatever, I seriously had no idea mm-hmm. how votes were going to break down. And the way we saw them break down is really that even though Democrats overwhelmingly got support in all the different seats in the state house. Proposition 112 did not pass, which you think it's an environmental issue, but we did not see Democrats who seem to dominate all these other seats and the two state houses really show up in mass support for 112. 112 is interesting because the most liberal places of Colorado voted for that. Uh, Aspen, Telluride, Denver, and Boulder. But outside of that, it did not have broad-based support in the suburbs or in northern Colorado, like Larimer County, which can be um, sometimes liberal. The places that are affected by fracking. Well, yeah, and that's my theory. This was really the first time the state had to weigh in on oil 
oil and gas development. And the majority of the state doesn't really understand how it works. They've maybe heard about fracking, but they don't understand how it's part of this multi-step oil and gas extraction process. And I wonder to what extent the lack of knowledge on that factored into votes. Because when I see uh, oil and gas come into communities, you see a pretty wide-sweeping group of residents who act against that because they don't want a major industrial process next to their homes. So if it's not in your backyard, you may not understand it. So why did, what does El Paso County know about fracking? What does Pueblo know well, about fracking? I actually disagree with you there, because if you looked at, at um, Weld County, where homeowners should know more than anyone else about this process, it was overwhelmingly against it. I think if you're in a community where you're having this go on, the folks who live near the wells may become quite upset, but the folks who see the money going into the schools and the other parts of of your government and start having friends working in the industry, it can look really different. And I think that's where you get into how the debate was framed. It was framed health and safety versus jobs. And who is predominantly impacted the most by if 112 would have passed? It's Weld County. There are thousands of jobs there. A lot of workers uh, you know, live and work in Weld County. So tax revenue. Yeah. That I got to say, though, sense. I live in Denver and I was surprised by how many no on 112 signs I saw in my very deep blue neighborhood, which also reminds you there are plenty of folks in Denver in law offices and business offices who also draw a paycheck from this industry. I was at the no on 112 uh, election night party and I saw a woman who had taken all the no on Prop 112 like signs and she made a cape out of it. Oh it was gosh. walking around. She had a, like a top hat and a cape and she said she made it like a month earlier and it was like kind of part of her campaign strategy. Oh, wow. I think the money made a difference in that campaign just as well. Know they how much. Yeah, tens of millions versus under $1 million for environmental groups. And that's where, you know, when I talked about those having no idea what way election results were going to go at 7.05 on election night, I in the back of my mind, I just had that there was so much spending and it was so lopsided. Boy, that's just really hard to beat. There is one point that maybe just I care about in this room, but <laughs> I thought it was fascinating that that debate did break down health and safety versus jobs. This is about the economy or about whether you want an oil and gas well in your backyard. We did not see anybody, not the 112 people, not the people against 112 and 474, make this about climate change. You know who we did see make it about climate change was national media. That was the Washington Post, the New York Times. They were doing roundups of climate change uh, ballot issues. But I think because we're in Colorado, I mean, think about the Firestone home explosion where two people died. People aren't thinking at an intellectual level. They're thinking more about explosions, uh, air quality. All right. So let's let's move on from 112 and 74, which I think is fascinating and we could talk about for another hour. But uh, this, as you noted, Ben, was a race that really focused on the suburbs. Why are the suburbs so important to this race? Because despite all of the voters in Denver and Boulder, like it's not enough to move progressive issues, right? You need to bring the suburbs along with you if you're on the liberal side. If you're on the Republican side, you need to bring the suburbs along with you as well. And so you see when you look at the voting patterns in the suburbs around Denver, it's very mixed. It's a lot of red and it's a lot of blue. And it's maybe it's getting bluer, but there's still a lot of red in there as well. So those districts can go one way or the other. And so you have to 
move those. If you don't move those, you're not going to win. Well, and I think what this election showed, again, to go into that idea of how much was this a national protest vote against the president and how much was this a Colorado-based vote, our suburbs, as you mentioned, are demographically not friendly territory to the president, and they went very blue on pretty much every box they could check. So not just the governor's race, but races where they probably did not have a ton of information about the candidate, state treasurer, secretary of state. These are races where political scientists look at those results to try and guess kind of partisan leanings and, and how much of a, an election was about partisanship. Voters in Denver's suburbs seem to really want to send a message about how they feel about the parties right now. And possibly that has a lot more to do with the parties nationally than the parties locally. And, and I think where we probably saw that uh, in the most striking way was with uh, U.S. Representative Mike Kaufman, the Republican who represents Congressional District 6, which covers large parts of Aurora. I was at the Republican Party on election night when he gave his speech and this is what he said about President Trump with regards to the race. I knew that my only hope of winning was to localize the race and that if the race was nationalized as a referendum on the president, that I simply could not win this race. Megan, do you think that Trump was an anchor on Kaufman? Oh, absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is look at his results in 2016 when he won that district by, I think, about nine points. Kaufman hasn't really done anything differently policy-wise in two years. He's still backing DACA. He still was doing uh, bills around veterans. Uh, he ran a lot of stuff that was very popular in very specific immigrant communities like the uh, Ethiopians and the South Asian communities. And he was very, very vocally opposed to a lot of the president's policies. But at the end of the day, you have Jason Crow, his opponent, the, now the congressman-elect, who was making a very strong sell of you can't afford Mike Kaufman anymore, CD6. You may like that guy. He may have done what you wanted. But if you want a check on the president, you need a Democratic majority in at least one chamber of Congress. And I'm going to help give you that. And it looks, looking at those vote totals, like that message, a lot of people agreed with it. So let's talk now about state politics. What do you guys think this is going to look like? Democrats have so much power. What are they going to do with it? Well, out of 112, which was the 2,500-foot setback, again, that didn't pass. But I heard so much chatter, both from environmental groups and concerns from oil and gas industry, that something is going to be pushed through the state legislature. There's a potential that this could end up on the governor's desk. And I think that's going to put Jared Polison, who's a Democrat as well, into a pretty tight spot. I would say there are a couple of other things that we've seen in the legislature in recent years that could not get make it past the Republican Senate that are almost starting to come back. One is a paid family leave program. This is very popular um, with Democrats, but it would create a giant new state program where they're collecting it out of people's paychecks and then disbursing it. That's a lot of new state jobs. That is a very big dollar amount. So that's a very ambitious thing that, that I think Democrats are going to want to come and back and work on. dispersing it, just to make it clear what this policy would do to people who are taking time off to take care of a child or a sick relative. Exactly. If you work for a company that's large enough to give you family medical leave, but they don't pay for your time off, you would be able to apply into this program mm -hmm. to get some part of your lost income refunded when you're having a baby or adopting or taking care of a sick relative or going through your own serious illness. Another thing that I think is going to be a big debate at the legislature is a red flag gun law 
uh, gun violence restraining order law. There was one last session. The one Republican who was really behind it lost his seat on Tuesday night to a major gun control activist, Tom Sullivan, the father of an Aurora shooting victim. That bill, which would let judges temporarily seize guns from uh, people deemed to be a danger, I really don't see how Democrats don't bring that bill back. And that's where I think you could see some backlash from Republicans. I mean, we saw the recalls that happened. I'm also thinking of just rural Colorado again. I remember covering Hickenlooper's sort of apology tour to rural Colorado. I remember covering those 2013 gun bills. I remember because of those gun bills, there was so much frustration. But also we saw in Weld County there was a secessionist movement, just raw frustration against democratically controlled state house and senate ben you're you're our business reporter what do you think colorado's business community is thinking about this new democratic legislature like what are they looking for now i i think they're bracing for it they give to both sides businesses that give mostly to republicans also give a certain amount to democrats as well so they have hedged their bets a little bit but they're also trying to identify business friendly democrats in the state legislature who they think can be some backstop on some of the measures that will come out of the legislature all right when we come back the youth vote what this election says about engaging the next generation purplish continues this is colorado matters from cpr news Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out The Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now back to Purplish, our politics podcast. The midterms saw huge turnout, especially among unaffiliateds. They voted in greater numbers than Democrats or Republicans. The youth vote also came into play. Here again is host Sam Brash. Uninformed, lazy, apathetic, those are just some of the jabs usually aimed at young voters after a midterm. That doesn't appear to be the case this year, especially in Colorado. According to early turnout data, the youth vote was way up compared to the last midterm. In fact, voters under 34 were almost the biggest voting bloc, second only to voters over 65. So, heads up, geezers. Us youngins are a force to be reckoned with. Many of the newest members of CPR's news team were out at drop boxes and polling stations talking to voters and trying to figure out what got them to the polls, especially young voters. Haley Sanchez and Joella Bauman are CPR's new fellows, and Natalia Navarro is our morning GA reporter. Hey, guys. Hello. So catch me up. Where were each of you on Election Day? I was in Arapahoe County, Douglas County, suburban Denver. Okay. I was all over. I started down in Greenwood Village, went up to downtown Denver, and then south to the Lone Tree area. Okay. And I was in Colorado Springs. Where are you from, right? Yes. All right, great. (laughs) So, Haley, let's start with you. Um, One trend we've been hearing a lot about is, like we've said, this big boost in the youth voter turnout in Colorado. It was already high. This year, it appears to be even higher. And you were in one of the reddest parts of uh, Colorado, El Paso County. 
Did you run into young voters there? Actually, I only ran into one guy. <laughs> His name was Matt Flaherty, and he's 21. He's studying political science at UCCS. The University of Colorado, Colorado right. Springs. Okay. Yes. Um, and he was dropping his ballot off at the mall with his dad. Uh-huh. And I asked him, you know, where are your friends at? Where are the young voters? I don't really know what my friends are thinking about for this election. I know uh, they're a little bit more conservative than I am, <laughs> which is totally fine, you know. But, uh, yeah, I know. I don't know if they're voting. I hope they I hope they are. They haven't really told me about that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I know I am. I know I always have and always will. Okay, so he couldn't really account for his friends, but he said they're a little bit more conservative than he is. Did he tell you about the issues he cares about? Yes. Um, he did say that he voted in support of Prop 112, which were the oil and gas setbacks mm-hmm. that ultimately failed. Right. He wanted to see more clean energy being used. Beyond that, he didn't really want to be associated with any party. Generally, I do see myself lining with the more democratic ideals, you know. But that does not mean I'm beholden to, like, the party itself because, you know, the party itself has their own narrative and their own agenda. And sometimes I agree and sometimes I don't. But I don't like to say, like, you know, I am democratic because it kind of puts my name on what they do. And, you know, it's like almost guilt by association if they do something wrong. Yeah, so this is something that we've kind of seen with young voters this year. They're a little bit hesitant about which side and which party to associate with. They don't really like President Trump, but they don't want to pick one or the other. They want to pick one party or the other. Right. Huh. Natalia, did, did you run into any young voters? I ran into a few, like first-time voter, 19-year-old Nikki Silva. She couldn't vote in the last election, and she was just really excited to have her voice finally be heard. Yeah, I've been wanting to vote for a while just because I've never done it. I turned 19 this year. I didn't do it last year, so I figured due to the last election, yeah, I kind of want to have more say in what goes on. She was not happy with how the last election played out, and she couldn't vote at that time. So she turned out this time to sort of put on the brakes uh, for the for the National Republican Party. Yeah, that's something I found, too. I ran into a couple young women at Rangeview High School, Deja Lofton and Lyric Finley. Great name. And they didn't really know that the election was happening until a few days ago. Huh. And I asked them if they'd studied up on the issues in Colorado. Um, not really, but... I hope to get a little bit more educated on it it, to understand fully. They said what really brought them out was helping to remove Trump from office. I mean, there's a lot of things that are wrong. There's just, like, a lot of stuff that's going on as far as, like, in the system and, like, stuff like that. But I know that this vote is, like, not specifically for, like, Donald Trump, but just, like, people in office. We can get people out of the office, and eventually we can get Donald Trump out of the office. So I would say pretty much just that. The other thing that I did hear from both of them was that this is our civic duty and we have to vote. Okay, so like everybody told them to get to the polls and they had to do it. Yeah. All right. Did you run into any young voters who lean more to the right guys or or support the president? I did. So I met an 18-year-old in Highlands Ranch, still in high school. His name's Brendan O'Keefe. And I straight up asked him if he supports the president. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd like to maintain the, you know... Republican majority. I'm not personally affiliated with any party, but I tend to, I'm a, I consider myself to be conservative. So guys, among all the young voters you ran into, did they lean more to the left? Did they lean more to the center or more to the right? For me, most of the people I talked to were leaning left. And I think that's more to do with conservatives' views of the news media. Um, They were really hesitant to talk to me, especially in Douglas County. They were very cagey about talking to a reporter. Um, But I think it has more to do with that than 
uh, the number of people at the polls. I found the same thing in Douglas County. I ran into Republicans who said they just didn't want to go on record with a reporter. Do you think they didn't want to talk to you because they weren't pumped about the election? Was that part of it? I don't think it is. I think it is more about uh, the views of the media. Those people seem to be very distrustful of us. Um, And it did seem like there were a lot of Republicans who would talk to me and then decide not to let me use their name on air. So we all are young people. What do you each of you think really turned out young people in Colorado this time around from from talking to people and just from your own lives? What do you think the, the big motivators were? I think it was a lot about the issues, and this was a chance for young people to come out and kind of change the direction of the country to stop Trump's administration, which a lot of people, young people, have said that they're not very happy about. I think a lot of that rhetoric from celebrities and, and various older people in our in our world of get out to vote, it's your civic duty, I think that really sunk in with a lot of the young women that I talked to who either... It was their first time voting and they were excited about it, or they've always voted in midterm elections and presidential elections alike. Sort of the like Taylor Swift effect, right? Exactly. (laughs) What do you think, Joella? Um, Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I also think that there were a lot of chances to put millennials and LGBTQ community women into office, not just in the state, but nationally. All right, guys. Well, thank you all so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. (laughs) Glad to be here. CPR's Sam Brash, along with CPR reporter Natalia Navarro and CPR fellows Joella Bauman and Haley Sanchez. I think that makes me the geezer here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Last week, we told you that Denver might be adding a new championship-winning team, and that's because Denver Roller Derby was headed to the international championships, which took place over the weekend in New Orleans. We've been really putting in some work in the last couple seasons to get up there and not only medal, but to win the Hydra, which is the uh, world championship trophy. Which is fun, because it creates a natural, amazing hashtag for us called hashtag Hydra. Well, unfortunately, it didn't happen for the team this year. They went into the tournament as the number four seed and placed fourth by the end of the weekend. Still, that's out of the top 10 teams in the world for roller derby. We spoke with Denver roller derby jammer Stacy Wilhelm this morning about the team's performance. You know, we came out fourth, which is not what we wanted, um, clearly. We ended up uh, having one of our teammates have an injury, and uh, we ended up just not being able to recover from such a such a loss. And we were shy of third place by, I think, 13 points. Again, Denver Roller Derby jammer Stacy Wilhelm. And 13 points is incredibly close, by the way, for Roller Derby. Wilhelm says the team will take a break for a while before gearing up for next year's championships. I think right now it's you know, mourn our loss for for a little bit longer and, uh, you know, find our resolve to move forward and figure out what next year looks like. I'm sure there'll be some additional trainings. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, 2019. I, I really hope that we can bring home the Hydra. Good luck to them. Denver Roller Derby coming in fourth this weekend at the International Championships. Finally today, we're taping our big holiday show later this month in a theater of about a thousand people. And this year, we held a contest for a chance to perform on stage. We heard from lots of Colorado musicians, and we'll announce the winner 
on Friday. Until then, I want to share some of the other entries that delighted us. This one is from the Denver Americana band King Cardinal and their original song, Alone, on Christmas Eve. Winter just appeared Out of nowhere but your tears Your hair still looks the same Despite your age Still I miss you all the King Cardinal feeling alone on Christmas Eve. It's one of our favorite entries in the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza Contest. We'll announce the winner Friday. And you can get tickets to the big event, which tapes November 28th, the Newman Center in Denver. I've just tweeted a link to tickets at CPR Warner or at Colorado Matters. Thanks for being with us. This is CPR News. CPR News.